Well, last week we talked about the presence of God, the good presence of God, that the church has to seek God and know God. And when we seek him, we enter into an environment that recognizes he is present. I think one thing we need to remember is that the presence of God is everywhere. Scripture says that God is everywhere. To enter into his presence is not inviting him into a place that he wasn't before. It's recognizing that he is in the room. It's recognizing it is a new dimension of us realizing he is here. We are to seek him and know him so we can understand he is present And from his presence, we gain all the wisdom and the knowledge and understanding that we need instead of seeking for wisdom and knowledge in things not of this world or or of, of this world, not of him. Why do we need this? Because we have got to learn how to flow by the winds of the Holy Spirit and be free in a spiritual realm. We need to learn how to enter into presence instead of trying to do anything by way of logic to do anything by way of our understanding. Because when we do things by our understanding, we tend to only walk in paths that we have known or paths that we have already walked down instead of walking into new areas or new paths, which is an apostolic call. We are called to go into new territory, to break down walls of religion in this area. We are called to break spiritual strongholds in this area And we can't do it by walking in paths everyone's already walked in. We've got to say, God, where do you want us to go? How does it work? What do you want it to look like? Y'all waking up now? Okay. We have one goal in this house. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on the earth as it is in heaven. In order to do that, we have to go into a new dimension of understanding he is present. Now, before I get into my message tonight, as soon as I was done preaching, teaching last week, one of the elders of this house, Pee Wee, came up to me and shared some things that God was stirring in him through the message. And we talked a little bit more in the week about it. And I said, man, you got to share that before I can share what I'm going to go into tonight. So Pee Wee's going to come up and he's going to share you some things that God has shown him as it relates to the presence of God. Put me on the spot. Um, I've, I've kind of prayed about how to approach it because that, there's, there's a lot of things that I was showing. I, I kind of shared with him what I pulled out that he was preaching about, talking about the presence last week, when he talked about the, the lame guy that they said that they drug him to the temple every week and leaned, leaned him up at the gate. And uh, so, but before I do, before I go into that, Something I wanted to say because there's a lot of seeing that he was talking about is um, a couple years ago when we went to, um, where was it up there with Dutch Sheets? And then we come back. That was when you got ordained or whatever underneath them. And when we were coming back, one of the things that really was on my heart, I I shared with Kyle, I said, Kyle, I really feel like in order for us to change our region, that we got to begin to change our perspective. And see, and the, and the reason why is the enemy right now is trying to distort the vision of the people. And that's the way he's, do, he's doing it right now in political things. They want us to see color. They want us to see the identity. 
All these things is how the enemy is, is messing, distorting the vision. The church don't even know how to see. So uh, just moving into that, it, because when, when he started talking about presence, I, I seen the picture where we, we've all heard the story about the, the lame guy, and he come to there, and he was begging at the gate. The funny thing is it said he'd been lame from a kid. He'd been like this all his life, and they'd been dragging him to church. How many of us have been that way? Drug him and left him there, but he never entered in. So he stayed on the outer parts begging when everything he needed was inside. All, all they had to do was carry him in with him. And um, so uh, just one thing that Kyle, that really, really, it, it, it took me to this place where he said that this guy here, when, when he, when he brung him there, he, he was focused down. If you know it's one, what you said, so many times when you got stuff on you that you'll, you got so much on you, you can't look people in the eye. And that's the first thing that they said. They said, look at me. Because it was about seeing. So, the ne and right after that, it's like God said, just go here. And I'll. And I'm going to read this a story that we all know, but it's, it's just like, man, it was so right on. And I shared it with Kyle. Focus and presence is what I wrote. John 8, 1. Jesus addresses the, the, spirit, uh, the religious spirit and then puts his finger in her dirt. He begins talking about the, the woman caught in adultery. And uh, <clears throat> I'm, I'm going to go to John Eight one. As y'all see, I don't like having to do this, and Kyle make and puts it on me to do it. A woman caught in adultery. So Jesus, Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early in, uh, in the next morning, he was he was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and taught them. As he was speaking, the teacher of religious law and the Pharisee brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they say, they say to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? They were trying to trap him and, say, and to say something he could use against him. But Jesus stooped down. And wrote in the dirt or in the dust um, with his finger. They kept demanding an answer. So he stood up again and said, <clears throat> All right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. <clears throat> when the accusers heard this, they, they slipped away one by one, beginning from the oldest until there was uh, only Jesus was, was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. And then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, Where are your accusers? Don't, uh, and didn't even uh, any of them uh, condemn you? And the thing that, 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 was, that really stood out to me is, ain't it so many times that, that, that people come in, the religious spirit will begin to test you and Jesus, Jesus said right there, he addressed, his main concern was presence, the, the, the woman, her need. And he, 
it, the, the funny thing that, that really stands out to me is he sit there, he began writing in the dirt. Who was the one looking down? That's what I told Kyle. I said, when you said that, it's like it really just stood out to me. Like the guy was begging at the gate, and he was shameful. And the woman here is standing here being accused by all the religious people. And Jesus was more concerned about her. She was in present. And she, the whole time when he dealt with them, he put his finger right back in her dirt. And the thing is, there's so many, so many times that we, we come in here and we got, we got issues and all this. And the religious thing wants you to get it right. You know, um, and so that, that's kind of what I share with him. And he's like, man, you, would, do you mind sharing that? And I'm like, uh, I will. But it, it, isn't it funny, like, no matter what's going on, that Jesus cares enough about us, he'll put his finger right in your dirt. Come on. Yeah, that's good. And, yeah, that, and, <clears throat> and I felt like that was such a good thing because tonight in this message, I want us to shift our perspective and try to help others shift their perspective that God seeing all your stuff is a very good thing. And he only sees with good eyes. He, he, he is so obsessed with us and wanting us to know him that he is willing to put his eyes on anything. And all he wants is us to respond to him. The people of Israel, Hosea is crying out on behalf of these people. Let us return to you, God. And for the past chapters, and even in this continuing chapter, God's like, I can't do anything with them because they won't let me. And he continues in this conversation in, the, in Hosea chapter 7. And I want to read the first three verses and show you what he says. He says, talking to the people, talking to Hosea, I want to heal Israel. I want to heal America. I want to heal the world. I want to heal my church. Let's talk about that. <laughs> but before the, before the world can be reached, the church has got to learn how to breathe again by his breath and not breathing machines called systems. I want to heal Israel, but its sins are too great. Samaria is filled with liars. Thieves are on the inside, bandits on the outside. It's people do not realize that I am watching them. Their sinful deeds are all around them, and I see them all. The people entertain the king with their wickedness, and the princes laugh at their lies. The problem with the people and the leaders of Israel is that they don't realize that in everything they do, God sees. They have willfully chosen to forget that God sees them and watches them and knows them and remembers every single thing they do. And I think oftentimes because we have, because we have a skewed view of what God would do if he knew all my stuff, we deliberately choose to forget that God is still watching. One of the most misquoted and mistaught principles, I think, in Scripture is when people teach and say this thing that God doesn't look on sin. It's actually completely opposite of what Scripture says. They derive this idea 
from Habakkuk 1.13. I want to read it to you. It says, God, your eyes are too, too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. That's where we develop this idea that God cannot look on sin. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? He says, you don't look on evil, why do you tolerate it? Anybody ever ask that question? God, if you can't stand it, why are you letting it happen? Why are you so silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? Why can't he tolerate wickedness? It isn't because he doesn't look at evil. It's that he doesn't look at evil with favor. It's not that he doesn't not look at sin. He doesn't look at sin favorably. In fact, Proverbs 15.3 says this, The Lord is watching everywhere, keeping his eye on both the evil and the good. He sees. He doesn't only see, but he keeps his eye on it, on both the good things and the evil things. When Adam and Eve ate of the, fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the first thing they did was what? They hid. They decided to hide. And the first thing God says is, where are you? God was looking for them, knowing what they did, but questioned, why are you hiding, as if I didn't know what you did. And last week, we talked about pathways, paths of righteousness, the right paths, and that the pathway to knowledge is fear of the Lord. We unpacked that a little bit. That the fear of the Lord is you fear a reality apart from God. So you seek to know Him. It says, in order to know, in order to gain wisdom, in order to gain understanding, you got to do one thing. Seek to know Him. What tempted Eve in the garden was not a shiny piece of fruit. It was a temptation of knowledge outside of intimacy. Let me show you Genesis 3.5. This is Satan speaking. God knows that your eyes will be open as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. What Satan was tempting Eve with was not a good, tasty lunch. It was, don't you want to know more? And what Eve wanted to eat of was, I want to know everything, choosing to believe an idea that there was more knowing outside of God than with God, out of his path than with his path. She wanted to know something other than the knowing that flows from intimacy. And when you start to pursue wrong paths of knowing, you begin to voluntarily forget that God sees you. So you hide from him rather than come before him in a posture called repentance. In the pursuit of God, there is no embarrassment of accepting that he sees because everything that he sees, he sees with good eyes. He sees with a, a, a want and a desire to accept what you're doing or redeem a wrong transaction. Psalm 84, 11, the Lord God is our sun and our shield. He gives us grace and glory. The Lord will withhold no good thing from those who do what's right. 
I'm going to tie this garden thing in a minute. Just, just roll with me. It says, he withholds no good thing from those who do what's right. Well, there's a problem with that if you look at other scripture. Because Matthew 5, 44 through 45, it's not up there. It tells us that he pours out his rain or his blessings on the just and the unjust. So it seems like you've got two conflicting ideals. Okay, well, you pour out blessings on good, you pour out your blessings on not good, but you say you withhold no good thing from those who are doing good. So which one is it? The key is while he may pour out rain, blessings, is that there are different levels of how much it rains. And if we walk as children identified as good, he said, for the ones who do what's right, I won't hold back the rain. I will let rain pour on the right and the wrong. But for those who do what's right, I won't hold back the degree in which it will rain. So if there is only a light mist going on in your life of blessing, you've got to start taking an inventory of self and ask God, is there anything I need to deal with? Because I know you see it for good divine purposes. I want your eyes on me for the purposes of shifting so that I don't have any block or umbrella from your reign. Hanani, the seer, came to King Asa in 2 Chronicles and he said, dude, you have shifted trust from God, from God and now you're starting to trust the king of Aram. And in verses 8 through 9, it says, don't you remember what happened to the Ethiopians? and Libyans, and their vast army with all their chariots and charioteers. At that time you relied on the Lord and he handed them over to you. The eyes of the Lord searched the whole earth in order to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. Strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. What a fool you have been from now on you will be at war. He says, dude, you made a treaty with someone that replaced God and the strength that you needed to accomplish the work is gone. Why is the strength gone? Because God sees all and he searches for those committed to him and he sees the transactions that speak to non-committed living. So where the rain of his strength will pour out without holding back on you when you depended on God, now... He takes it away. He's holding back the rain. God says, I don't look at that transaction favorably, so I'm not going to strengthen you for that purpose. And even in wrong transactions, we should celebrate that God looks on us because the good seer wants to redeem the wrong transactions. You see, the thing about Adam and Eve is that when Eve sinned when she took the fruit for a different kind of knowledge and then gave it to Adam and they found, they found themselves in sin. They found themselves naked. Here's the key. There was a punishment that was going to happen. God saw it and saw a transaction and said, I have got to take you out of the garden. Here's the key. It wasn't punishment. It was protection. Because in the garden, there were two, he said, of everything in here, there's one thing you cannot eat of. 
knowledge. Because the only knowledge I want you to have flows from me. But there was another tree in the garden that they had access to to eat all day long. You know what it was? The tree of life. And in a fallen state, if they would have eaten from that tree of life, they would have committed themselves to being eternally damned. So God says, I see the transaction that you just did something out of obedience to me, and I love you too much for you to stay here because staying here is not good for you. So I'm taking you out of the garden, and I'm going to redeem where you can't eat from the tree of life in the garden, but you can eat from it outside the garden through my son. Is this okay? Y'all are really quiet. Think about the Great Commission. It says, go and make disciples. Baptize them. Teach them to obey. Be a light to the world. If we would just focus on what we are commissioned to do, we wouldn't set our eyes on when are we getting a blessing or a payout from it. We would set our eyes on him who guides us into assignments that we are commissioned for. And we would never question the biggest thing that the church questions, timing. God, when are you going to do it? If you are focused on when will he pour it out, it's an indication that you're not trusting that he sees what you're doing. Because if you trusted that he saw what you were doing, then you know that his promise will be fulfilled for a harvest. And what the church does, we don't, see in, we don't see a harvest in the area. We don't see souls being saved. We don't see Savannah getting turned upside down. So the church says, hey, we're going to take this into our own hands. There's not enough presence. So let's change the lighting. We're not getting in the presence, so let's get a haze machine. Right? We're not getting in the presence, so let's do more outreach. The souls aren't being uh, saved, so let's try something different. And we start taking things into our own hands instead of seeking to know him more. You think about any church that's uh, kind of dying out that has an old traditional mindset. The first thing they want to change is their style instead of their seek. Hymns do not prevent the presence of God. Lack of seeking does. Contemporary worship doesn't invite more presence of God. Your seeking does. And when we don't seek to know him more, we start to try to take God's promises into our own hands and we say we want to do something with it because God obviously doesn't see what's going on. In fact, this kind of happened to Abraham and Sarah. God promised a son to Abraham, even though Sarah couldn't get pregnant. Ten years go by, and they don't have kids. So they start trying to assist God, trying to make something happen. Because obviously God doesn't see it. Well, God must not know you ain't pregnant yet, so we got to take this into our own hands. This is what we do. Am am I right? I know. 
So Sarah suggests something to Abraham. He says, Sarah's like, all right, I've got this maidservant, Hagar. Maybe you could just get her pregnant. And Abraham's like, all right. And things start to get heated. Y'all okay? Hagar gets pregnant. And then she starts looking at Sarah as if she was beneath her and worthless. Because Sarah couldn't do for Abraham what Hagar could do. And then Sarah got mad, obviously, because her maidservant postures herself as above. So she gets mad and said, Abraham, do you want your girl? And Abraham's like, this was your idea. She is your, this is scripture. This is your idea. She, she's your servant. You deal with her. So Sarah starts dealing with her, treats Hagar harshly. And you know what Hagar does? Runs away. Well, in that scripture, picking up in Genesis 16, verse 7, it says this, the angel of the Lord found Hagar. You know, because God sees even, even the wrong things. Even the things that he never planned for. You see, God does not plan for everything to happen in your life. But he does know how to make a wrong transaction redeemable. God never planned for Ishmael to be born. This way. See, that, that pushes theology a little bit. But God says, everything exists in me, even if I did not have a plan for it. This plan was Sarah's plan. Okay? The angel of the Lord found Hagar beside a spring of water in the wilderness along the road to shore. The angel said to her, Hagar, Sarah's servant, where have you come from? Where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarah, she replied. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her authority. And then he added, I'll give you more descendants than you can count. The angel also said, you are now pregnant and will give birth to a son. You are to name him Ishmael, which means God hears. For the Lord has heard your cry of distress. The son of yours will be a wild man, as untamed as a wild donkey. He will raise his fence against everyone, and everyone will be against him. Yes, he will live in open hostility against all his relatives. Therefore, Hagar used another name to refer to the Lord, who had spoken to her. She said, you are the God who sees me. She also said, have I truly seen the one who sees me? So that well was named Beer Laha Roi, which means well of the living one who sees me. It can still be found between Kadesh and Barrett. So Hagar gave Abram a son, and Abram named him Ishmael. Here's what I want to pull out of this. Hagar needed something. She needed a transformation. She needed redemption. She wanted her circumstances to change. And instead of running to the Lord, she ran and hid because hiding is a posture of God must not see me or I don't want God to see me. Look what I've done. And if you understand he sees you, then you need to understand he knows how to transform you. Therefore, invite him, look upon every part of my life. And oftentimes we run and hide and get sustenance from other springs of water than going to the one who's called the living water. 
And God himself wants to look on us and satisfy us. You see, Ishmael was not, promised, was not the promised son to Abraham, but God still recognized Ishmael and Hagar and blessed them. Side note, there's all this theology that tries to teach people that some are destined for heaven, some are destined for hell, some are not, some are this. You've missed a truth that everything exists in God. I want to share a personal story. Can we keep it to, to this room? Is that okay? I, I, I was born way out of time. I was born to a mother who got pregnant at 14. And for some reason, nothing happened to me that was planned to happen in a negative facet. I'm not going to go into detail with that. And I was born. And thank God I had wonderful parents who adopted me. I tried to wrap my head around that when I learned about that truth of my life. That how is it that God wanted me in Pooler, Georgia when this is the place I grew up because they didn't accept Jesus in his hometown. Why would God place me here? The enemy tried to take me out before I was born. The enemy tried to take me out of Pooler and put me in, uh, in Charleston and somehow the people that adopted me and my mom and dad were from this very place. And here's what God showed me. Just like Ishmael, he, I did not plan for you to be born in those circumstances. It wasn't God's plan that a 14-year-old got pregnant. But God looked at it and says, I can redeem that transaction. I will go further to say this. I believe that this is an apostolic house that is going after things that no one has ever gone after. Knowing my story, I do not believe I was God's first choice to lead it. But all I needed was a yes. And says, I will redeem that transaction. I say that to say this to you. God sees everything. And there is no such thing as it's too late for you. There is no such thing as God couldn't do it with me. He looks on you and sees you and says, I can redeem every path and every transaction of your life. You know, the only thing that he needed out of Hagar was obedience. You know what God said to her? Go back to the ones mistreating you. And because of her obedience, God blessed her and God blessed the one who was not promised or planned. Is this okay? That's why this church will not be silent about voting positions. I will say from the pulpit, I don't care who the candidate is, vote pro-life. Because I don't care how it happened, God can redeem the transaction. Is that okay? God banned Adam and Eve from the garden. He wanted to protect them. He saw a wrong transaction of giving self to knowing anything other than him. And he put his eyes on it. He says, I'm going to redeem that. So let me get you out of here and give you a new path to the tree of life. He says, Adam, I see and I need obedience because you don't see like I do. You see, the way God sees is different than we see. 
In Revelation 22, 13 through 14, it says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Now watch this. Blessed are those who wash their robes. They will be permitted to enter through the gates of the city and eat the fruit from what? Do you realize that the thing we lost access to in Genesis, God centered the entire plan to get us back to the tree? How? He gave a son who paid the punishment of what we did in the garden so that we could be made right to eat that fruit. He sees everything in a different way. He sees beginning and the end. He sees the end result of every planned transaction and every unplanned transaction. Do you really think that God planned for Adam and Eve to mess up so that he would have a Bible to write? The plan was that he created man. The plan was that he gave man woman. The plan was simply be in the garden and govern and govern the earth, name everything, and give me glory. He never planned for them to choose a knowing of another sort. But because he knows the end result of any possible transaction, as soon as it happened, he planned what we call a second Adam for his word to become flesh. The way his word was flesh before sin was through Adam and Eve obeying the word. So why did Jesus leave? Because the word is still flesh. He understood that to multiply himself, he had to go. I feel like that's a word for some people. One of the biggest things in this church that shifted was that fast decrease for increase. If the father is a vine dresser, he has to prune you back before you can multiply. So if you're going backwards in your life, if you steward it correctly, going backwards is not always the indication of wrong things. Sometimes going backwards is simply subtraction. And God says, let me prune a little bit because I need to make room for new transactions, for new pathways. Because I have seen all the error, I have seen all the good, let me redeem it because I've got my eyes on every single thing. Is this okay? It, it, it says, wash the robes. It says, wash their robes so that they will be permitted to eat of the tree of life. You know what washing robes actually is? In, in the Greek, the most true phrase for washing of the robes is simply this. It, 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 it means do his commandments. Because the robe is a symbol of strength. So to wash it is to make sure you cleanse yourself of anything that's making you weak. So to wash the robes is do his commandments. But what religion will do is start teaching a series on the Ten Commandments. Washing robes, meaning do his commandments, doesn't mean necessarily just follow the Ten Commandments. It means follow his commandments. Like do his commandments when he says, bless and forgive the one who did you wrong. Because when you bless the one that, or forgive the one that did you wrong, if God tells you to, then you are washing yourself of the bitterness that makes you weak so that the reins of his strength are not held back. Do his commandments. Take the job offer that has less money. God, I don't understand why. 
You're not supposed to because you don't see every end transaction. He does. One of the best decisions of my life was when I left thousands upon thousands upon thousands of dollars in scholarships to take a job cutting grass at a church and they just called me a youth pastor. <laughs> Making no money. It was a, I'm not joking either. It was a significant decrease that did not make sense and every person close to me said that's a bad idea because none of us could see the end result. But God sees and he sees the obedience. He sees the end result of the transaction. And he can redeem anything. Do his commandments. Say no even though it's everything you want. Do his commandments. Hagar. Go back to Sarah. If you wash your robes, he says, do what I have assigned you to do. And you get to eat from a life that you were always created to eat from. He sees with good eyes. God will look on sin, and while God does not look on sin favorably, he does look at your obedience favorably as a redemption process from the sin transaction. Okay. God tells Hosea, I would heal Israel if they would stop living like I don't see them. Your life of repentance and obedience reveals if you live as if you believe he actually sees you. But why don't people live as if God sees them? I believe the church has painted a wrong picture of seeing. We've painted a picture of God. You better not do that thing because God will see you. Instead of praise God that he sees you when you did the wrong thing. And you've got tons of people living in a celebration of wrong pathways because their idea of church is if I walk into the house, it will burn up. You ever heard that? Yeah. I can't come to church. That place will light up on fire when I come in. And they don't even understand that the fire's good. They don't understand that it's good eyes he looks at you with. They don't understand that because of the sound coming out of the church at large. So it's not, it's not they need to get a new idea. Is we've got to make sure that we paint the right picture that he sees with good eyes. Verse 3 of Hosea 7 says, The people entertain the king with their wickedness, and the princes laugh at their lies. Entertain the king means simply they aim to please the man. Princes laughing at lies is simply they practice the lie of idol worship right in front of their authority, and everyone says it's okay. That's a lot of the posture of the church today. Hey, do what you want because God loves you and there's grace. Just get here in the seat so we can pay bills. Let's rewrite scripture to endorse sin because it gets them in the church. And what's happening is we're embracing all these things that is opposite of the right path and we're becoming more obsessed with how man sees us rather than how God sees us. It's what the culture is about today. The, the, the culture of this world is all about, you, you, you can't offend anyone so you have to allow anything to go. 
It's everything from the way we talk to people. I, I, I even caught myself doing, doing it with, with my uh, nephews the other day. We, we were out. They were helping me pick up trash on my side job. So I was like, hey, I'm going to bless y'all with a double chocolate chip frappuccino. Get you real sugared up before I drop you off with mom and dad. And we were going into the Starbucks line. And they were going to say, you know, like, Merry Christmas. And, and I, I, I literally said this. I, I, I wanted to punch myself in the face. I said, no, no, say happy holidays because they might get offended if they don't celebrate that. <laughs> oh, is it okay that I? <laughs> but isn't that what we do? Now, I know that that's a little bit of a reach for some of us, but here's the point. We hide what we believe in so we don't cause them to be offended by a truth. We're walking in a day where it's almost like we don't want to celebrate that he sees everything. He sees all the good and he sees all the distance. And why is it good? Because with his good eyes, he knows the wrong and he knows how to redeem it. Wash the robes. He says, I want to uncompromise obedience from my people. Even when the obedience looks weird. Because we don't want to say yes to earthly kings anymore. We want to say yes to the heavenly one. God continues with Hosea in verse 4. He says, these people, they're all adulterers. They always aflame with lust. They are like an oven that is kept hot by the bakers kneading the dough. On royal holidays, the princes get drunk with wine, carousing with those who mock them. Their hearts are like an oven blazing with intrigue. Their plot smolders through the night, and in the morning it breaks out like a raging fire. Burning like an oven, they consume their leaders, they kill their kings one after another. No one cries for me to help. God says, my people are consumed with passion and desires for self and idols. He says, you're burning and you want to bake the bread. But you're so consumed with passion that nothing can be baked. It's only consumed and eaten up. In other words, he says, people, you're burning wrong. Instead of crying out for the bread of life, you're just consuming anything you can get your hands on. And you're consuming empty practices and empty religion. And you're crying out the false gods. Because you have all this burn, but you're not directing the burn toward me. You are so careless in your passion that anything that says yes to your passion, you embrace. You consume each other. Think about church. We get so passionate about God that we'll beat other people up when we see them do wrong. He says that's the wrong burn. We get so passionate about apostolic ministry that we rebuke any ministry that's not apostolic. He says that's the wrong burn. We get so passionate that so-and-so got wrong theology wrong that we actually burn them up rather than offering them peace. He says you're burning wrong. He says, your passion for blessing actually causes you to consume whatever, including each other. When I want your passions to burn for knowing me so that we can start baking something good. He says, I see that your burn is wrong. Cry out to me. 
Sometimes the washing of your robes is as simple as a cry by way of redirecting your burn. It's not, I'm passionate, let me meet the passion. It's, I'm passionate, God, have your way. Show me how you want me to burn. Instead of my burn being out of control. You, you, you want your kids to do what's right, so you rebuke them thinking it's going to help them to get it right. It's the wrong burn. Is this making sense? Paul actually tells the people in Corinth, he says, it's better to marry than to burn with your passion. And what the church does is we make that scripture all about sex. There's more to it. He says, your burn should be directed toward one singular focus, the one you're married to. So don't burn for anything else other than the bridegroom. Redirect your burn toward the one who sees you from start to finish. Y'all are so quiet tonight. Okay. He goes on. He, he talks about the burn in a different way. He says in verses 8 through 10, the people of Israel mingle with godless foreigners, making themselves as worthless as a half-baked cake. Worshiping foreign gods has sapped their strength, but they don't even know it. Their hair is gray, but they don't realize it. They're old and weak. Kind of like the pastor's ball, but he still has hair product. True story. Put lotion on it all the time, hoping that the oil of gladness will just spark some hair growth. Their arrogance testifies against them, yet they don't return to the Lord their God or even try to find them. He uses the term half-baked cake. In this time, the way bread was prepared is they would put it on the ovens and they would have to cook it on both sides, just like a what? A pancake, right? Yes. He says, you're burning for the wrong thing. One side is cooked and the other side's worthless. He says, you get what you want, but you don't give yourself to me. You're trying to serve God and yourself. He says, you can't cook like that. You cannot burn for you without burning for me. When you burn for him, the you gets taken care of. But if you burn for you, <laughs> he says, I can't allow limitless rain. I can't allow my fire to cook you in a good way. He says, because you burn for you and not me, your strength is gone and you don't even know it. You're empty and you're weak. I feel like a lot of times in the church, one of the biggest things that gets people is we get tired. We get exhausted. We have to question, if seeking God bears a fruit of strengthening, if we get tired, is it because we were doing it burning for him or trying to prove something to ourselves? Like, if we get tired of praying, what are you praying for, results or God? I'm tired of praying for my healing. Why? Because you don't see it? I get so tired of praying for my kids. Why? Because they're not saved. Are you praying for the result? 
Or are you praying to put your passion burning in the right place? God, I agree with you, not the circumstance. Because when God sees the unsaved, he saves someone that should be his. So do you pray to see it or do you pray for agreement? If you see how you burn, we can figure out why we're not strong. It's, it's, it's like gathering together in the church. I hear a lot of pastors talk about how once COVID it happened, it changed everything. You know what? Praise God that we saw what he sees. Convenience. If it inconveniences you, I beg to say, check, why, check what side you're cooking. How do we pick houses of worship? You hear it all the time. Well, that's just not close enough for me. I, I'm not doing this to, to throw shade, kind of. I, I am telling this because we all have to make sure we check our burn. Why do we do the things we do? Because religion will weaken you. If you come to church just because you're supposed to come to church, there's no benefit in that for you. You're half-baked. I just realized what I said there. <laughs> it's an ice cream flavor. It's an ice cream flavor. <laughs> you are so concerned, consumed in your own burning that you can't be prepared for any good work under heaven. If, think about the Great Commission. It's not just a banner. It's an announcement that he has commissioned you for assignment. He's commissioned you to do something. So how do we respond? Oh, I got saved. Salvation is your commissioning. Not the goal. Salvation, you are reborn to grow new. Salvation, get them redeemed so they're back in the place where I can grow them to a new place. Put them back in the right path. Help them to redirect their burn for me rather than the burn for themselves. We've made church about get everyone saved rather than get everyone to walk in their commissioning. Salvation is process for assignment. You can't do it without it. What assignment? Bring glory to God. How? Through the way that I've commissioned you to do. He goes on in verse 11 to 12 with a, yet another example. He says, the people of Israel have become like silly, witless doves. First calling to Egypt, then flying to Assyria for help. But as they fly about, I'll throw my net over them and bring them down like a bird from the sky. I will punish them for all the evil they do. He says, church, people of God, you look like witless doves, doves without sense. You're flying around with no direction. You're going to all these nations for help, and you look stupid. 
You go to them for help, they can't do it. You go to them for help, they can't do it. You go to them for help, they can't do it because you're trying to escape me by finding refuge in anything but me. Church does it. Well, there's not revival, so we're going to go to this church conference and that church conference and this leadership forum and that summit, and God says, you look like silly doves with no direction. You're trying to get tips from everyone on how I told them to do it. He says, I want you to get your knowledge of how through me. Seek me. Seek first the kingdom, and all these things will be added. Seek me. Stop trying to find what I offer in all these other transactions. It's funny when we start to idolize things and processes, we actually enter into an identity of a defiled image of the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus like a what? Dove. You know what the difference is? It was a singular direction. It was for the purposes of the Father. If you keep going anywhere but me, God says, I will throw my net over you and bring you down and punish you. Why is that good? He punishes you to redirect you. He brings you down to prepare you for good singular flight. He punishes because his good eye sees what you're doing and he knows where that will end up. And he says, I did not design you to fly like that. So let me humble you and bring you down so that I can restructure the flight pattern. He says, church, you cannot escape my eyes. So I will throw out a net that, can't, that you cannot escape for the purpose of redirecting. I believe a net was thrown out over the church. And we're trying to find out we're trying to figure out how to steward COVID instead of seek deeper levels of intimacy. We're trying to figure out the church of 2022 and the church of 2023 instead of realizing the scripture says there is no new thing under the sun. He, I believe he wants us to get us back to a level where church was that we have been finding paths to exit out of. And because we keep going further down long paths, he threw a net. And people left, and people exited. And I praise God that in the past couple years, this house has just went with it and said, okay, God, what's next? Not how do we steward COVID, but where do we direct our burn? So you know what the first thing we started doing with redirecting the burn? Let's actually start to fall in love with each other. Because if we're all sons and daughters of the living God, there's something in each of us that we should all love that we see things in each other, that there's something in you that I don't have in me, and there's something in me that you might not have in you, but together we have the thing that God sees. And right now, we're entering this place where we're starting to, to, to get a new direction. We're starting to see the, the, the prophetic gift starting to really rise up more. And we keep hearing that the winds of the Spirit are blowing through all these messages. Let me tell you a little something about that. I get, I've been getting text messages for the past two or three weeks about all these big-name people using uh, the, the, the terms of the winds of the Holy Spirit. L let me tell you something that should encourage you. 
while I am commissioned and ordained and submitted to authority, I, teach, I intentionally do not listen to their sermons. You want to know why? Because I want to make sure that what I'm directed from is simply by the wind and not a voice. And when I see that they're saying the same thing, it confirms that we're in the right direction. Because it's really easy to see something that's growing and say, oh, the Holy Spirit's leading me there. But I want to make sure that our burn is even. I want to make sure that we are seeking God first in everything we do so that he takes care of all the things we need. He wants us to go in one direction, and that's him. God, I'm having a problem in this area. Okay, seek me first. And if it doesn't line up with his ways, it's not the right path, even if it, even if it seems like it works. If he requires intimacy with him, that intimacy should flow into family structures. So if you're, seeping, if you're seeking paths to provide that don't influence a good family structure, what are you really burning for? That's personal, that's the house. Is this, is this making sense? He says, you can't escape my eyes. I see. I see it all. He saw the woman. And as Pee Wee said, Jesus wrote in her dirt, which caused her to look at him in a new way. Right? Hagar saw, had a revelation that God saw her. So she was obedient. Hosea, crying out to God, God says, the people have forgotten that I'm seeing everything they do. All I want is for them to return. The last few verses says, what sorrow awaits, verse 13, those who have deserted me? Let them die. They've rebelled against me. I want them to redeem them, but they've told lies about me. They don't cry out to me with sincere hearts. Instead, they sit on their couches and wail. But let's just put that one out there. They, they sit on their couches and wail. They don't cry out to me with sincere hearts. The level of your voice does not denote more presence or more authority. Isn't it funny when we try to cast out demons, we think yelling at them does more than just speaking at an audible level? Y'all ever notice that in deliverance? When it's not working, they just get louder? That, that does not denote more authority. It's the posture of your heart. He says, they cut themselves begging foreign gods for grain and new wine. They turn away from me. Isn't that interesting? They want the new wine. And they're trying to find the new wine in any way but him. They look everywhere except to the most high. Well, verse 15. I trained them and made them strong, yet now they plot evil against me. 
They look everywhere except to the Most High. They are as useless as a crooked bow. Their leaders will be killed by their enemies because of their insolence toward me. Then the people of Egypt will laugh at them. He looks at the people and says, you're useless as a crooked bow. Everything that you shoot from your bow, you miss. You miss the mark. Everything you do. I fear that this is the church of today. We try to do all these good things. You know, we have all these turkey drives at Thanksgiving, right? Is the burn because God gave you the assignment or is it to make yourself feel better? Because you see something. Nothing wrong with giving away turkeys, obviously. I'm all about it. Nothing wrong with giving away Christmas presents. I'm all about it. But the question is, why are you doing it? Are you trying to convince yourself that you're pleasing God? Or are you burning in such a sincere way that everything about you is pleasing to God? And when you go to give out the Christmas toy or go to give out the turkey, it's because he puts you on assignment. Just because it's a good thing doesn't mean it's a sincere thing. Because a lot of times the very people giving out those things are the ones struggling to breathe. They're wanting more, they're wanting God, and they're finding it in service and not seeking. Yeah. They're wanting God, they're finding it in service and not seeking. Serving should be a commissioning from your seeking. That's one of the biggest marketing schemes that I think is hurting the church. When people get in, the first thing we want to do is we need you to serve. Instead of, instead of trying to get to know where their seek is. That's the discipling. What are you burning for? What's your goal? What do you want? And it's not God. We've got to teach them to redirect their flight pattern. He says, you want new wine. You find it in everything but me. You see, Israel saw the problem, but they didn't see the reason for it. They saw their lack. They saw that nothing's working. And instead of going back to God, they're going to that place and that place and that place and that place and doing this thing and doing this thing. Oh, well, let, 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 let's, let's do a, another worship service. Right? Let's do it in a new way. They're actually idolizing the process. And God says, you keep doing that, I'm going to let you die. I'm going to let you be conquered. Not because I want it, but because you won't submit to me. And he says, I see you, and I want to redeem you. So here it is. In Romans 3, 10 through 20, I close with this. It says this. As the scriptures say, no one is righteous, not even one. No one's truly wise, no one's seeking God. All turned away, all become useless. No one does good, not a single one. Their talk is foul like the stench from an open grade. Their tongue is filled with lies. Snake venom drips in their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. They rush to commit murder. Destruction and misery always follow them. They don't know where to find peace. They have no fear of God at all. Watch this. Obviously, the law applies to those to whom it was given. Its purpose, the purpose of the law, is to keep people from having excuses and to show that the entire world is guilty before God. No one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. 
The law simply shows us how sinful we are. He's bringing all this out to say you cannot be righteous without him. It's not a scripture that makes that, that, to try to get us to understand that we are not good. It's you're not good on your own accord. And he says the point of the law isn't for you to get obsessed with getting it all right. It's to understand that the law is a revealing of why the rain ain't falling. The law is part of the seeing good eyes of God. It's a revealing agent. He shows you why you're walking empty. He says, oh, you want to know why you're not going forward? I let you see by my law. It's not get it right so that you can be redeemed. It's this is part of the sight of God. I'm showing you why. I'm showing you why there's a limit in your life. I'm showing you why, church, you're not going forward. I'm not giving you the law to get it right first. I'm giving you the law to reveal why you're not getting it right. There's a lack somewhere. This is the evidence. My law says do not do this. If you're doing it, the eyes of God are seeing it and showing you by way of law. Everything God wants, he's wanting us to understand everything that he sees is for good purposes. When he sees the good in your life, blessings, unlimited, strengthening for the purposes. But he also sees what's not good. So So he lets it go backwards. He lets it die. He lets the church be conquered. He lets your family go backwards until you understand. He wants to redeem all transactions. Scripture's clear. He wants us to prosper. And prosper doesn't mean that everyone gets rich. That's what we refer to as prosperity gospel. He wants us to prosper. But the definition of prospering is he wants you to prosper so that you have everything you need to complete your assignment that you've been commissioned for. And for some, prospering means millions. For some, prospering means a $14 an hour job. It's what is the assignment right now. It's what are you called to do right now. Because he sees the end from the beginning of that yes. He sees the end of the beginning of that obedience. He sees the end of when you do something totally out of character for you, but in character with the one who sees good eyes he says I see you and I want you to inherit life eternal life problem is when we say eternal life we we immediately think of a destination instead of a way of living he says I redeemed you for the purpose of here's my tree that you could not eat before And to eat of it, to grow, to have life and life more abundantly, come to me and expose every transaction. You know, I believe a lot of the big sin of today is because people have have been closeted in their transactions. Think think about the, the, the the homosexual agenda all over the world. 
these kids grew up confused, not knowing who they were, and they couldn't tell anyone at church or they would be told they couldn't come in or they were burning in hell. So instead of being in the one place where God wanted to see it to expose it, they had to hide it and they went into an identity in hiding and now it's out and about and they don't even know that they're wrong. They're deceived because they couldn't go to a place that said he sees that with good eyes. He sees it wanting good things out of you. We, we, have, we have made this place a place of condemnation instead of a place of redemption. Nothing good comes out of hiding. I say we be a family where you can expose anything you've got because our goal is not to push you to the side. Our goal is to show you the one who sees you with good eyes. Our goal is to shift your perspective of how God sees you. Let our prayers and our posture be, God, show me what you see so that I can be what you see. You see, he sees you as good. So when he sees something that doesn't line up with good character, he doesn't say, I can't call you good. He says, let me redeem that transaction. Let me redeem that thing. He sees with good eyes, good intention. He's a good seer. Amen. Let's stand. God, we give you praise tonight. We thank you that you see everything in our lives. I declare that there is no more hiding. God, we come before you exposed. You see the church that you want. God, our prayer tonight is that you show us, and when I say us, God, I, I mean show everyone that's connected to this house, specifically for this house, show us where our burn is right and where our burn needs to be redirected. I, 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 I declare this, that wrong flight patterns, just throw your net over it right now and give us singular direction. Let us not be a people burning for anything but you, God. We don't want to be a people that pride ourselves on reaching goals. We want to be your people who have one desire, God. That is to know you more and more and more. And you are so good and so endless and so worthy and so beautiful that there is never enough seeking that we can do. So God, let us burn for you more individually and corporately. We don't look to anything but you, God. That is our prayer tonight because we know that you see us with good eyes. God, as we leave this place tonight, show us all the places that can be redirected toward you so that this house and this body is conformed more and more into your image and your purposes, that our desires become the desires that you've put in us, that our wants flow from your wants, that our identity is nothing less than how you see us.
Let us become a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. The light that burns so bright that all the ones who have been hiding for all their lives, for some reason, they come to a good place and allow you to put your eyes on them one final time. And when they allow you to put your eyes on them one final time, they redirect everything and burn only for you. We thank you for your good eyes tonight, Father. We love you. That's in Jesus' name we pray, everybody said.